This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. So we need to demonstrate by all of the things that we are doing in these days and the days to come that our democracy continues to be strong, that we can stand up to this threat and that we will. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The fallout continues from the unprecedented January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol building. There are lots of questions about why Capitol Police weren't better prepared to handle the situation and why federal forces used during the summer's racial justice protests were not on standby to help. I spoke with Suzanne Spaulding, CSIS Senior Advisor for Homeland Security and Director of the Defending Democratic Institutions Project about the lessons to be learned from the siege of the Capitol. We also discussed what it means for democracy and the message it sends to our adversaries around the globe. Suzanne, thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Bev. It's great to be with you again. You've been working on a series about the institutional integrity regarding the use of federal forces for the past several months. In light of what happened on January 6th, can you talk about how and when they're supposed to be used? Yeah, so let's start first by defining what we mean when we talk about federal forces. You know, when we talk about federal forces, we mean everything from active duty military to federalized National Guard units to civilian federal law enforcement such as folks from the Department of Homeland Security, Department of Justice, or in this case, the U.S. Capitol Police. So when we think about how they should be used, you know, our tradition in this country is that with respect to dealing with civil unrest across the country, we typically defer to local law enforcement first as the first line of defense. Washington, D.C. is different because there's so much federal buildings and federal activity in Washington, and certainly the U.S. Capitol building as a federal building where federal and constitutional processes were taking place on January 6th. So the federal forces in charge there were the U.S. Capitol Police. We do turn first to civilian law enforcement, and we turn to active duty military as a last resort. In between those is uh, National Guard units under the control of a governor in other states. They are then allowed to engage in law enforcement and they are under state control. Those National Guard units can be federalized and put under national control of the president. Again, Washington, D.C. is different. In Washington, D.C., the D.C. National Guard is not under the control of the mayor. And of course, D.C. is not a state and has no governor. The D.C. National Guard is actually under the control of the president of the United States, who has delegated that to the secretary of defense, who has delegated that to the secretary of the army, who has the authority to call out the D.C. National Guard. Federal forces, federal military forces, So federalized National Guard and active duty military are not to engage in law enforcement activities. That's pursuant to a statute called Posse Comitatus. We do not want the military in our country engaged in law enforcement activity unless, and the key exception to that is 
the Insurrection Act, unless there is an insurrection. And so, of course, that's very relevant to the activities of January 6th. Some may ask why the military couldn't just respond in this type of emergency. Why couldn't the Pentagon do that? Well, it's not clear that the Pentagon couldn't. Again, because of the unique nature of Washington, D.C., I think the Defense Department could have, on their own, deployed the National Guard. I think, prudently, their normal policy is to get approval, and generally approval from the president, to deploy that National Guard. But technically, under the law, that authority has actually been delegated to the Secretary of the Army and certainly to the Secretary of Defense. So the National Guard could have been deployed without a request from the U.S. Capitol Police or from the mayor of D.C. Along those lines, Suzanne, all of these complicating factors, and there has been a lot of back and forth with people talking about in the lead up to January 6th, why more preparations didn't take place and why there wasn't a plan in place. But those things aside, what are the most important lessons to be learned by authorities from what happened on January 6th? Because I would love to say that we're not going to see anything like this again, that this is a one-off. But given the tenor of the times, we may see another type of insurrection like this. Well, you're absolutely right, Bev. This is not a one-off over and done. This is an ongoing threat. You know, in the days to come between now and January 20th and after January 20th. So your question is well put, which is what are the lessons we need to learn right now? You know, we will spend weeks, months dissecting the events of January 6th and learning lessons from it, but we don't have that kind of time to learn some immediate lessons. So first of all, we need to make sure that the people who need to have intelligence information to assess the threat all have it, and we will eventually find out who did and didn't have that information. But there was certainly plenty of information to indicate that what happened on January 6th was within the realm of possibility and should have been planned for and prepared for. We need to understand when requests were made for help and how those were dealt with so that we can be ready to be much more agile going forward. But it's really important that as we look at the events of January 6th and understand that they were ill-prepared and under-resourced, to deal with what the threat that they should have anticipated, that we not lurch in the other direction, right? So over the summer, we had an excessive, what was criticized as an excessive and escalatory response to demonstrations in DC and in Portland and across the country for racial justice. And then in DC, we see an underwhelming and clearly inadequate response to a threat and what was ultimately an insurrection at the Capitol. And I think one of the lessons we need to take from that is that we need to remember that law enforcement must always be apolitical, even-handed, and based on the threat. We cannot let politics come into our decisions about preparing to secure our democracy, our citizens, and our institutions. You raise a really important point there about law enforcement and the need 
for them to be apolitical. I was going to ask you about this later, but since it came up now, I'm going to go with it. There have been many, many conversations since January 6th about the fact that in the crowd were people who were either retired or active duty military. There were elected officials in the crowd. There were law enforcement officials from around the country. What are the implications of that for this country going forward, since there are in many communities already a lack of trust in police and in law enforcement? And it seems as if there's something going on here that isn't being talked about that needs to be talked about. Bev, it's really devastating in terms of public trust in these institutions. But We are not just learning about this and discovering this problem today. There have been indicators all along for quite some time now concerning participation of law enforcement in political rallies. Primarily, you know, I'm thinking of the unions of some of our federal law enforcement entities, for example, that have been used as props in political rallies in ways that should have raised much more alarm bells. We've seen photographs of members of the military with extremist patches and and other indicators. And we need to strongly reinforce throughout our law enforcement entities and military the norm that we once took for granted, that they must be apolitical, that in order to sustain the public trust that is essential to achieving their mission, they cannot appear to be political partisans. And there's news that some of the Capitol Police officers have been suspended because of their actions during the riot, uh, to include there was the video of one officer in a selfie with one of the rioters. What does this do in terms of the trust? Yeah, well, I think it's really important that those who have Certainly anyone who engaged in the insurrection at the Capitol or failed to do their duty to put down this mob should be suspended, should be fired, should be relieved from duty. That's one important way to begin to rebuild trust in these institutions. But again, the leadership of these organizations needs to continue to strengthen that norm in every way that they can, both in their public statements and in their training and in disciplinary actions. And we did see some good, strong statements coming out from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, you know, in the military, the importance of their being apolitical. I do think it's important, again, that we not take that message and that norm and that importance of being apolitical and use it as somehow a justification for failing to adequately plan for and prepare for what needs to be done to protect our institutions and our public. So being apolitical doesn't mean that you don't step up when you're needed and could be appropriately deployed to provide protection. So again, I think it's important that we learn the right lessons and not the wrong lessons from this. Would one of the lessons be better civics education? Absolutely, Bev, and this is something I feel quite passionate about, as you know. As Americans watched in horror the events of Wednesday of January 6th, you know, I know that many were asking questions about the strength of our democracy. And, 
And in fact, on Tuesday, just the day before, I had been speaking to a group of high school and middle school girls about national security and the strength of our democracy in the context of COVID. And they had lots of questions about, you know, whether our democracy was really worth standing up for and how strong it was. And I think it's really important that a message come out from these events on January 6th that our democracy is strong, but it is not invincible. It is not inevitable. Our democracy must be fought for because it's under attack by enemies, domestic and foreign. And that importantly, it is worth fighting for, not because it's perfect, far from it, but because it is capable of change. That's the beauty of democracy. And as I told these young girls, that's one of the important ways of distinguishing it from authoritarian and totalitarian regimes, which are brittle and incapable of change. Democracy is capable of change. It is susceptible to change. And we, all of us, must be those agents of change. And so civics education teaches us not just about the three branches of government, but how to hold them accountable and how we can be more effective agents of change to move our democracy toward a more perfect union. And I think that's a really important lesson to come out of January 6th, that there are ways to bring about change through peaceful and constitutional means, and that all of us must be enlisted in that effort. Circling back on the issue of democracy, what message is the sending to our allies and our adversaries? So it was clearly troubling to our allies and encouraging to our adversaries what happened on January 6th. And and that's obviously not a good thing for our national security. So we need to demonstrate by all of the things that we are doing in these days and the days to come that our democracy continues to be strong, that we can stand up to this threat and that we will and are standing up to this threat. So I think the efforts that are underway in the Congress right now to send a message in the strongest way possible, that we condemn this, that we are moving against the incitement, to condemn the incitement by the President of the United States of this mob that ultimately overran the Capitol, that we are looking at our security right away and that we are strengthening our posture to be prepared so that no one is emboldened, that we are making the arrests of those who participated in this insurrection to send a signal that we do not condone this in any way and that there will be consequences. So we need to attack this across the board, all of those efforts. And then on the other side, coming from the other direction, we have a new president coming in who will be sworn in on January 20th. That continues to make it clear that he will be a president for all Americans. And that's an equally important message that they are focused on making sure that even their foreign policy is geared toward making sure that they are serving the American public across the political spectrum and the socioeconomic spectrum, that they are going to look at, does this improve the lives of Americans? And how does it do that? And I think all of these efforts will be important to addressing the threats that we saw on January 6th. There are some who are suggesting that we should just move on from this so as not to be divisive. What are your thoughts about that? 
I don't think we in Washington certainly can move on from this because those who represent the threat to our democracy have not moved on. So this is an ongoing threat. It's really way too early to talk about moving on. We need to address in a very strong way the threat that we face. And that includes, as I said, holding those responsible accountable for their actions. So I think that's critically important. You know, I do think, as I say, that we need to make sure as a government and as a new administration coming in, that we are reaching out to all Americans. But I think it's critically important that we demonstrate how strongly we condemn and stand up against and will prevent any kind of recurrence of what happened on January 6th. And until we have taken the steps that we need to take to send that unmistakable message, it is really too early to talk about moving on. You mentioned earlier in the conversation that what happened last week, there were plenty of, I guess, alerts, if you will, on social media for people who were paying attention about what might happen. And I want to get your thoughts about why more attention wasn't paid to that and what the responsibility of social media companies may be in terms of addressing this kind of situation. We all know that there was action after the fact. After January 6th, there was action. But let me get your thoughts on those two things. Why more attention wasn't paid to what was being said? And then what's the responsibility of social media companies? It's hard to know at this point why uh, within government more attention wasn't paid to this or at least more action wasn't taken to anticipate and be prepared for the kinds of threats that we were seeing very clearly in conversations online. There's a lot of speculations, you know, were there were there folks who were sympathetic with the folks who were putting out this information and these conversations online? And is that one of the reasons that the response wasn't more forceful? Was it that they couldn't imagine that these kinds of people, whatever that means, could engage in, in an insurrection, in this kind of violent activity? There were lots of folks who were involved in conversations around the level of security, including the sergeants at arms for the Congress, who actually controls the U.S. Capitol Police. You know, was there skittishness about having, for example, National Guard near or in the Capitol because they were afraid that it might make it easier for the president who had entertained conversations about martial law and use of the military to overturn the election in the days leading up to this? Were they worried that having the military close by might make it easier for him on a pretext to call in the military to disrupt the proceedings? It's really hard to know, but all of those questions reflect a concern that politics may have been warping decisions that should have been made on a totally apolitical basis based entirely on the nature of the threat and what would be required and prudent to prepare for that. So that's the first point. On the role of the social media companies, I do think that they have not stepped up in the way that they have been urged to do to seriously think about their role in providing a platform for spreading this kind of toxic and dangerous content and in recruitment efforts and in being a platform for disinformation. 
It is true. They have taken steps. They have hired a lot of people to review content. They have looked at their terms of service. But the fact that they are now taking additional steps and much stronger action is an indication, I think, that the action they had taken to date was inadequate. And so I think it is important that we have this conversation. You know, I, it's interesting because the actions of Twitter and Facebook with regard to shutting down, for example, the president's accounts and the actions of Apple and Google with regard to taking the extremist platform parlor off their app stores is both welcome in, in some respects, but also, uh, as others have pointed out, an indication of the power that they have in providing a platform for speech in this country. And so I think these are issues that are now getting more serious consideration and really need to be looked at. And you're a lawyer, so I'm going to take advantage of that, a lawyer by training, and ask about the First Amendment implications of this, because there has been some blowback since the social media companies did take action after the fact. There have been complaints about freedom of speech being limited, but freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom from the consequences of what you say. Well, that's right. And of course, technically, you know, legally, the First Amendment applies to the government, not to the private sector. So these platforms, you know, are not bound by the First Amendment. But the principle that underlies that freedom of speech, that we believe we are stronger for having a robust marketplace of ideas, for example, are things that, you know, do need to be part of this public conversation. But these platforms are private sector companies and they have terms of service and they can set those terms of service to create the kind of environment on their platform that they want to create. And so I think it's important that we find ways to empower users to demand the creation of the kind of platforms that they want to be on or at least to create incentives or platforms that aren't overrun with toxic content, that aren't inciting violence, that aren't you know, full of harassing content, for example. And one of the ways that's being talked about to do that is potentially to create more competition in the development of social media platforms. So there's some important and interesting conversations happening, and that's a good thing. You mentioned the terms of service. I'm wondering how many people actually read before they click, I accept the terms of service when they sign up for any online venture, because you are legally bound to abide by those terms of service. Well, that's right. And I, I think more than you know, reading the terms of service for most users, they can see what's happening on the platform. You know, many of my colleagues have borne the brunt of the kind of toxic speech that is allowed to take place on Twitter and, and is often so rampant there and on Facebook. I mean, users can see what's happening on these platforms and it would be good to think that users are waking up to the power that they may have to try to create incentives for platforms that are, are less toxic and, are, and create the kind of environment that users want to have for their communications. As we wrap up here, there's one other issue I want to circle back to that you mentioned earlier when we were talking about the message that this sends to both our allies and our adversaries. 
have we made ourselves more vulnerable to our adversaries, given that because of what's happened, we're not paying as much attention to really critical issues such as the massive Russian cyber hack that was uncovered back in December and was one of the top stories before January 6th. I'm confident that our cybersecurity professionals across the government and in the private sector have not been distracted from their task of dealing with the massive hack that we refer to as SolarWinds, the SolarWinds hack, which seems to be broader every day. So I, I do think that is continuing. But at the senior leadership level is where you have to always remember that these are human beings and that they're still limited to 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and can only focus on so many things. And so it is their ability to provide that senior level leadership on these issues that we worry about. So I think that's a legitimate concern in terms of a, a distraction. But I, I do believe that the cyber professionals are hard at work, even through all of this, addressing that. Of course, there's some IT concerns directly related to the events of January 6th, highlighted by the theft of a laptop from both the House and the Senate. And so we certainly expect that our IT professionals in the Congress are on top of that and are doing what needs to be done to protect the security of the information network uh, for the Congress. But I worry, Bev, about another way in which this threatens our security in terms of the message it sends to our adversaries, because I think you know they are looking to see, is this in fact an indication of a weakness of our democracy and weakness in our security, both information security and physical security. And this is, again, why I think it's so important that we send a very clear signal that we have learned the lessons from January 6th and we are taking the steps that we need to take and that no one should misunderstand or think that there is a vulnerability that has been opened up here. Suzanne Spaulding, thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I really, really appreciate it on this critically important topic. Thank you so much. Thank you, Beth. Thanks for having me. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.